This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in a grove of trees near the village of Beeksbourne in southeast Kent. It is August 1914 and we're watching two young boys high in the branches of a beech tree where they have fashioned a shelter out of an old cart and a small cider barrel. The smaller of the two has brown curly hair and is demolishing an apple. Both have their eyes fixed firmly on the horizon where, out of the haze, a cloud of dust is rising, and the sound of jangling horses' bridles and the grind of iron wheels is getting ever closer. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today on Backlisted are a returning guest from our deep past <laughs> and a debutante from our present and future. Please welcome to the show... Uh, James Cook and Melanie Williams. Hello, Yay. both of you. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for coming along. Yes. James Cook is an author, editor, and arts journalist based in London. His first book, Memory Songs, an exploration of the music that shaped the 1990s, was published by Unbound in 2018. His second, In Her Room, How Music Helped Me Connect with My Autistic Daughter, was published by Bonnier Books in 2020. He is currently an editor at Review 31 magazine. His short fiction and essays have appeared in the anthologies Vagabond Holes, which was published by Fremantle Press, Penguin Australia, and Garden Among Fires, published by Dodo Inc. A regular contributor to the Times Literary Supplement, his journalism has appeared in The Guardian, The Saturday Telegraph, Art Review, 3AM Magazine, <laughs> Minor Lips, Boundless Magazine, uh -huh. yeah. Litro, and Review 31, among others. He previously appeared on Backlisted episode 56, which was a Christmas episode, a lovely Christmas episode with his brother Jude, to discuss Ian Fleming's on Her Majesty's Secret Service. James, what is it about you and choosing books about films on Backlisted? <laughs> well, just always been sort of obsessed with films and, and British films in particular. They have a lot in common uh, in terms of their sort of visual style, I think. You know, Cubby Broccoli said that, that every penny of the budget is up on the screen, which which you get with with a, a lot of the, you know, uh, Colonel Blimp and, and A Matter mm. of Life and Death. And there's lots of other things like that. 
you know, the, the humor, the one-liners and that sort of stuff. So there's a, there's a few connections there that, that, that I found. Well, a theme that we'll return to uh, in the course of this episode is how Michael Powell brackets listeners spoiler he's the author of the book we're going to talk about uh and michael powell <laughs> believed that art at its best should encompass all other forms of art within it so it's perfectly acceptable for a books podcast therefore to feature the work of a book by a filmmaker taking in films based on paintings music ballet and other sources because it's all one song uh, as uh, neil young uh, famously says uh, so so that's my that's my answer to anyone who's thinking why are they doing films this time well we are and we aren't because you know it's all one river we're also joined today by melanie williams hello, hello. Mel. hello. melanie williams is a professor of film studies at the university of east anglia she's written and edited numerous books about british cinema including ealing revisited david lean female stars of british cinema Two books about British film in the 1960s. We are in debt to her for that work in particular, <laughs> listeners. And most recently, a wonderful BFI film classics Brilliant. book on the kitchen sink classic, A Taste of Honey. <laughs> Uh, a particular favourite, it says here, of Andy Miller. Because uh, that's uh, I started referring to myself in the third person now, <laughs> like all lunatics. Andy Miller does like that film, Mel. <laughs> hey, Mel, guess what? This is the second mention of Rita touching me on this podcast in two weeks. I managed to get a smashing time in last time. Oh, so are you hoping for a hat trick? Yeah, we do. Uh, next time, listen, listeners, if you're playing bingo at home, listen out for the words Rita Tushingham <laughs> in the next episode. Melanie, um, what when you're writing about film, do you write for readers who have already seen the film, or are you trying to encourage people to see it for the first time? Oh, that's that's a, that's an interesting question. I suppose you're trying to do a bit of both. So, you know, often with the kind of writing that I'm doing, I'm aware that it might be used as set reading for someone's university course. And so you're introducing people to a film in some instances, um, but you're also trying to provide something for the people that are already very familiar with that that film. So it's, it's kind of, a, yeah, a bit of... Bit of both, I guess. I noticed that you're um, perhaps acting in the in role of consultant in some way for the forthcoming production of A Taste of Honey at the Royal Exchange in Manchester. I am, yes. Which what is, are you uh, advising them on? The beehives or the uh... <laughs> Duff, duffel coats? Uh, duffel yeah. coats, yes, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm official consultant on duffel Canals. coats. Yeah. Yes, those are my special. Uh, specialist subjects, yeah. No, I, got- I would guess on kind of Sheila Delaney and and that that particular kind of period in post-war British history, and yeah, the whole kind of uh, context for for that play, and then the film adaptation. John, move us along, please. I will. Well, probably not going to come as a surprise to hear that this the book that we're discussing, that James and Melanie are here to discuss, is a life in movies. Uh, the autobiography of Michael Powell, first published by Heinemann in 1986 and acknowledged as one of the best and most engaging books about English cinema ever written. As Powell's friend and most famous cinematic disciple, Martin Scorsese, writes, the book is much more than the reminiscences of a film director. It is as absorbing as any novel. 
From his early childhood in rural Kent before the First World War, through his accidental entry into the movie business as a gopher for the silent director Rex Engrams, his apprenticeship to Hitchcock, his partnership with Emmerich Pressburger, who, between them as the Archers, wrote, produced and directed 19 movies, including many that are now regarded as classics. Powell's book is astonishing in its detail about how each movie was made and why, and contains portraits of an astonishing cast of characters, not just actors, but technicians, artists, musicians, choreographers, all of whom helped transform his craft into art, or as the critic Ian Christie described it, daring experiments in reducing the importance of narrative. Something we love on this podcast. <laughs> I, can, I can get behind that, yeah. yeah. Uh, amazingly, for a book of over 700 pages, written by a man in his early 80s, the narrative ends when he's just 43, just after the huge and unexpected success of The Red Shoes in 1947. As Alexander Walker has written, this doesn't really matter. Such is the charm and energy of Powell's prose. He is able to present the whole man in what is really half a life. The second half of that life was much more difficult, as I'm sure we'll discuss. But what we have here is a rare thing, a book by a supreme craftsman in a new art form, picking up the trims, as he writes, from the cutting room floor of memory. The book also gives us the chance to each choose and talk about one of the movies Powell writes about, Productions of the Archers, directed by Michael Powell, written by Emmerich Pressburger, though even that division of responsibilities isn't really accurate. But before I start wielding the clapboard, I have two things to say. The first thing is, at the end of this episode, I um, am going to read... A something I'm genuinely really excited about this. This is a piece of primary research. While I was preparing for this episode, I stumbled upon a poem by Michael Powell that has not been reprinted or referred to as I as far as I can tell since its original publication in 1959. It's a genuinely um rare funny, splenetic and characteristic piece of work by Michael Powell. And it is my pleasure and privilege to be able to bring it back to the world here on Backlisted. So stay listening or fast forward (laughs) for that. That's coming up at the end of the show. Exclusive. Exclusive poem by Michael Powell. James, you chose this book. When did you first read it? Or when did you first become aware of the films of Michael Powell and or Emmerich Pressburger? So it was, um, well, 30 years ago, 31 years ago, 1993. And I found it in Muswell Hill Library. I remember it well because I, I drew two books out that day. One was John Densmore's biography, um, Drum of the Doors, <laughs> which was so bad that <laughs> I still wish I could invoice him for the, the hours of my life that I, I'll never get back. And the other was Michael Powell, A Life in Movies, which was which was amazing. So I, I sort of drew out, you know, one of the worst memoirs and one of the best on, on one day. Um, that's a little bit unfair to John Densmore. I mean, it's a great drummer, but, you know. No, I don't so, think no, so. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, John. <laughs> I know you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> I was aware of Powell and Pressburger and The Archers because I'd seen A Matter of Life and Death about 10 years before. But this book, which was this magnificent spirit, brawling memoir, uh, clearly written by a raging egotist and a genius. 
<laughs> yeah, in a voice that was charming and companionable and funny. Also teeming with with stories about the Powell and Pressburger films, which I was eager to hear because you know you couldn't that sort of information pre-internet wasn't hard to it was it was hard to come by. That's very um, true. And and yeah, as you've said, I think we touched on that. It's um it's also a, a history, an alternative history of the of the entire film industry, from silent movies up until around 1948 when the book ends. I'm sure this is a thing we'll return to. Was A Matter of Life and Death the first film that you remember seeing by the Archers? Yes, yes, it was. So rewind 10 years, maybe 11 years, back to 1982. I switched on BBC Two very late at night and there straight, there, there straight away was the burning bomber sequence. Right. Uh, next minute you know you're in this sort of cool monochrome uh I was going to say heaven. They're very careful not to use the word heaven. This other world, you know, and uh, and then I just I I, I didn't I, I just filed it away in the back of my mind as this this um, this strange film, you know, with, with David Niven. It had all the sensibilities. This is what I really remember of a modern film. Yet it was clearly made in ninety in the in the nineteen forties. So I couldn't make it out, and that was my first exposure to the Archers. Also, it's worth saying, David Niven, author of the single greatest book of all time, "The Moon's a Balloon." The Moon's a Balloon. So uh, <laughs> one day we will we will make an I episode, and then our work ne- here will be done. I can't believe we've ne- we've never done that book. Well, they, their books are very quite similar, you know. Yeah, incredible. In, in, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Melanie, so the same kind of fudged question to you. <laughs> when, well, you know what I mean, because it's so, it's so difficult to bring it into one. Event. Can you remember when you either when you first read A Life in Movies or when you first became aware of Powell and Pressburger or The Archers as a uh, 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 an artistic force? I guess the film that that sent that I was I was really taken by and that sent me back to the Powell and Pressburger films was Peeping Tom, which is obviously Powell without. Pressburger, mm. um, and I saw that at the at a kind of art cinema when it was on a sort of nineties re-release or around that time. And which, which cinema? Which cinema, please? Oh, I think it probably would have been uh, either the Watershed in Bristol or Hull Screen. Okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, one of those. Yeah. And um, I, I was absolutely kind of blown away by this and. And finding out about the the kind of critical reception that the the film uh, had, and how it, it you know it was said to have ended Powell's filmmaking career. Of course, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. But yeah. that sense of sort of transgression, rebellion, a film that's a sympathetic depiction of a serial killer with the colour and the violence and, uh, you know, as a kind of, you know, 90s cineast, this was right up my <laughs> strata. <laughs> and that kind of sent me back to the earlier Palm and Pressburger films and, and you know, a kind of process of really kind of retrospectively finding those really interesting, particularly Black Narcissus, I Know Where mm. I'm Going, mm. kind of mystical, magical, yes, weird, magic. idiosyncratic mm. British films. One of the things I think is a recurring trope in Powell's films and Powell and Pressburger's films is um, reminding the viewer that even the worst human beings are still human beings. 
And uh, uh, Peeping Tom, it seems to me, is a perfect example of that. Mark in Peeping Tom, you're not you're presented with a monster, but you're also shown the monster is not born but made. Mm. Uh, and that seems to me rewatching several of these films before before recording this. This is an ongoing thing. Um, we'll we'll come on to this when we talk about our individual films. But time and again, you meet bad people who are not inherently bad. They've made choices, or choices have been made on their behalf, or a mixture of the two. And what I love about Palin Pressburger is they exploit that idea for drama and comedy and pathos and you know, it's it's the full range of human experience is is explored through that simple uh, principle. John, can you remember the first time you saw a, a film of the Archers? I think that was around the, the in the middle of the eighties. They started to restore the films, so there was, I think, a restored Colonel Blimp for the first time. People said nobody's seen this film for ages in a cinema, and I, in my head, I went to the Rio Cinema in Dalston. Uh, while I was still at college. I got the train down to London. I did that twice when I was at college, in very short order. Once to see The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which changed my life, and the other time to see Andrei Rublev by Tarkovsky, which also changed my life. But they became, for me, like the two greatest movies in the history of the world ever. Uh, and I sort of, there's still part of me that thinks that might be <laughs> that might be a sound judgment. And then Michael Powell's book was published in 1986, and I bought it, and I just remember... It was just an astonishing thing that this this these filmmakers I've become interested in. He was not only was he still alive; he'd written this massive seven hundred page book with all all the information you could possibly want about his life. Probably more information than you really needed about his life. But it's it's. I mean, it's still when people say to you your favorite memoirs, it will always be in my top two or three favorite. It's memoirs. It's really interesting looking at the reviews of it from the time of this book, because several reviewers. It's not widely reviewed, that's the first thing. No, it thing. isn't. Right? And the second thing is, at least two reviewers are kind of disgruntled. It's sort of presumptuous, they feel, of Michael Powell to pay himself this much attention. You know, that's... <laughs> which is not an attitude, I think, that we would have now. And one no. of the things I found... One of the reasons I'm asking you about when you first found this is um, context ch- has changed a lot. You know, when we all came to Powell and Pressburger in the... 80s or early 90s, they were not perhaps seen venerated in the way that they are now. And the criticism of Powell's autobiography, How Dare He, is sort of similar to many of the criticisms that the Archers faced for their films. People were going, but why do you feel entitled to make a film about this subject or not have a clear message in this film? You know, it's it's a recurring theme. It's only as, you know, we talk about on it, once one generation of critics dies that we can clear them out the way and and see things <laughs> things a bit more um, plainly. It's, it's almost emotional for me, James, that you brought this today. Yeah, completely. It's, it's like... Completely. It's some of my favourite work is, is in their films, but also me this too. memoir. I've read this memoir several times. And the follow-up Million Dollar Movie, which he didn't quite finish but was published several years after Michael Powell's death. And to me, those books are expressions of ego, for better or worse. What does the artist require to keep going? Belief, self-belief. Which he's not short of. 
No. But he, it you need it because yeah, well, exactly, because yeah. all these people are telling him he he's you know their films are too wacky or too esoteric or or not commercial enough. But you, you know? need you need that to be a film director. I mean, there's a cert, very certain sort of personality. Yeah. Very few people could do it, and 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 he does. Um, he probably wasn't that uh, easy to work with, although he had a a really loyal sort of band of band of brothers he called them all the, the top people in the in in all across yeah. all the departments um but you know he 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 could he admitted that he could be um you know rude and blunt in fact as i was reading through this time i i collect i started to collect a, a list of words of, of adjectives of how he described himself so selfish dreamy cultivated impulsive <laughs> snobbish reckless silly serious Shy, arrogant, quick, impatient, rude. I gave up at that point. Um, you know, he was a nice bunch of guys, but he had a <laughs> he had a he had an ego on him, you know, uh, and rightly so because he he um, he talks about being a great artist, and uh, there's no real score settling. I felt in the book, but he could, there was a sort of tone of vindication that crept in towards the end. But you know, he by rights he could he could have had much more of a sense that he'd been completely I mean he was unemployed for the the whole of the 70s yeah um, Melanie in um, A Life in Movies as James suggests Powell isn't backwards in coming forwards about his own achievements no <laughs> do we find that endearing well I, I think that what offsets that that kind of sense of egotism is the the self-awareness and the self-reflexivity and I think it's a really interesting book on the the making of a filmmaker and what you need to be and to do in order to do this job um and yeah he's he's clearly a complete idiot at certain points <laughs> but he also kind of reflects on that that idiocy so when he's being awful to his future wife, Frankie, when she comes on location for The Edge of the World, he's quite sort of self-lacerating about why was I being such a pig to her? What, you know, what, what was going on? Why was I such a fool? Um, so there is this, uh, this kind of self-analysis as well as self-justification. And, and he kind of needed that advocacy from Scorsese and from... Coppola and from critics like Ian Christie because he was a kind of prophet without honour in his own land. He was neglected. How true. It's striking that the contemporary reviews of the Archer's films are often, they're, they're not bad, um, but they're not often terribly good either. They're mostly bemused. You know, how extraordinary that you would have these two filmmakers producing in quick succession a series of masterpieces. And listeners, if you haven't seen um, A Matter of Life and Death or The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp or Black Narcissus or I Know Where I'm Going or The Red Shoes or A Canterbury Tale or Peeping Tom or maybe half a dozen more, please stop this podcast now and go and find them and watch them <laughs> yeah, yeah. and have your head turned upside down. But it, it seems to me... Another extraordinary part of their achievement that they produced so many 
quintessentially English films from a position of outsiderdom, even as those films were being made. You know, John, it's the public, actually, who ensure Howl and Pressburger's ongoing popularity, not critics. Critics tend to say, what's this film trying to say? It's the public who, who it's like my mum, because she liked films about ballet, loved the red shoes. She didn't necessarily need to see the archetypal um, tragic structure within it. What she saw was somebody, in Pal's case, responding to the passion and vibrancy of dance and seeking to translate it to the screen. And similarly, my, my dad, you know, my dad didn't, you know, my dad was not down at the front of the new Fellini, you know. <laughs> but, but he could see a sensitive exploration of life and death, of yeah. matters of life and death. Yeah. And so it's the public who do a lot of the carrying for their reputation for many, many years, right? And, you know, yeah, I think yeah, completely. And I think Powell says, you know, he mir mirrored the English to the English. I think he kind of mirrored the Scots to the Scots as well. And I know where I'm going. Often when I have conversations with people about Englishness and what Englishness now means, and people often talk about Powell and Pressmoker movies. They'll talk about, they'll talk about Blimp or they'll talk about Matter of Life and Death or they'll talk about there's some, there's some kind of emotional, they touch some sort of deep emotional core which uh, a, a lot of, in a way that, you know, the cleverness and brittleness and Americanness of Hitchcock doesn't quite do. To, to, to do what they did with, with Blimp in the middle of a war, you know, having to have Churchill kind of watching it was, was extraordinary. It's a film in the end about how friendship is more important than, than, than political conflicts, even though, you know, they were both very clear that, they, that, 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 that how evil Nazism is. It's extraordinary. So I think they're they're very wrapped up. If 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 this country is still obsessed with the Second World War, and there are there is some evidence that it is still, then Powell and Pressburger are kind of the best kind. They're, they're the best part of that obsession. The relationship between Powell and Pressburger and the war effort is seems to me absolutely crucial to understanding how they got to do yeah. what they did. Mm. Um, why don't we hear a bit that this is a, a clip of Michael Powell. I believe, reading the very start of A Life in Movies, the memoir. Um, so let's hear the voice of the man himself now. All my life I've loved running water. One of my passions is to follow a river downstream until it reaches the sea. Today that sea lies before me in plain view, and it's time to start the story of my life to remount it to its source before I swim out, leaving behind the land I love so much into the grey, limitless ocean. Yet, although I love grass and trees and woods and forests with the passionate love of an Englishman for his island, I shall not be afraid to swim out over those awesome depths. I've seen men and women far better and cleverer than I, crippled by illness, killed by chance. I've been allowed to reach the summit at which I aimed in a profession 
that never existed until we invented it. Whoa. <laughs> what? And there was humility there. <laughs> there. There was there was humility in 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 what he was saying. You know, he wasn't just the uh, the sort of the, the, the film director that um, actors thought were trying to to kill them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just also reminded me just very quickly that the start that for the first two hundred pages, it's it's a uh, you know when he's growing up on the hop farm in Kent, it, it's it's. There's nature writing in there that it is, is great. You know, I mean, there's, there's yeah. travel writing later in the book that is great, but is, there's all sorts of things going on um, in this memoir. I mean, Pressburg doesn't appear, does he, till sort of 300 pages in? We will, we will we'll meet him later, <laughs> James, don't worry. <laughs> I mean, I, I think this is one of the things about both Michael Powell and Emmerick Pressburger. Let's not forget, it's a sort of basic thing. They're writers. Yeah, yeah. They write. They write books. In fact, we talked about Emmerich Pressburger's novel, The Glass Pearls, his second and final novel, way, way, way back, episode 16 of Backlisted, since which time that that novel has been republished, and justifiably so, because it's terrific, um, The Glass Pearls. He wrote his first book, Killing a Mouse on Sunday, is very good. But Michael Powell as well. Michael Powell's willingness to fuse... um, a literary sensibility with a filmic one is one of the most important things, Melanie, yeah. that that he or him and Pressburger bring to cinema, certainly British cinema, I would say world cinema. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and one of the things that really comes across, particularly in the, the earlier part of A Life in Movies, is this sense of someone who's absolutely embedded in this... Uh, kind of particular literary culture so the mm. the references to to kipling but a, a whole series of writers that are kind of forgotten now but he kind of makes reference to their works and the kinds of characters that they have uh, expecting us to kind of keep up with him <laughs> but it, it absolutely fixes him as a as a man of a certain period and cultural formation and it's and it's a beautiful kind of unpacking of all of that. Yes, and also presumably it's very valuable, Melanie, is it, as a repository of information about how films were made in the in the early Hitchcock era and the early era of British cinema. Yeah, it's funnily enough, the first time that I read the book, it was because I was uh, I was filleting it because I was preparing a lecture and teaching on Paul and Pressburger. So it's a, v- a very particular kind of reading experience where you're not necessarily in it for the, the lovely kind of <laughs> descriptions. You're like, right, let's get to this bit that tells us about how they did this particular film. So it it was very nice to revisit it and actually uh, spend time with the kind of earlier part of, of Powell's life about which he's, you know, so fascinating and, and eloquent. Yeah. James, one of the things that struck me reading this book here in the year 2024, in the future, is that it feels so much more valuable as testimony than perhaps it did when it was published. You know, when it was published and Powell was still alive, there's a kind of sense of, ah, he's finally getting his dues, we love Michael Powell, you know, Kate Bush visits him in New York famously. You know, he's having his moment again with... His wife, Thelma Schoonmaker, and Martin Scorsese is being rediscovered. But coming to it now, the idea that people would criticise it for being too self-regarding seems seems 
insane. <laughs> it seems, it's, I can't find the word. It seems absurd, doesn't it? It's interesting because, because yes, you know, um, he was being rehabilitated in that time. And he touches on his friendship with Martin Scorsese uh, at, at times. And so he was, he was, people were starting to come round to the archers. Um, but it is strange reading it now because all you've got to do is just, you can click on IMDb or Wikipedia, you can find out everything you want to, yeah. you know, you can binge yeah. of this stuff. Back in the early 90s, it, you couldn't, you know, you'd basically have to stay up late to watch the films or, or, or set the video recorder. And it, it was very hard to find um, information. So it's a very different experience re- reading it now. Yes. Was Powell writing for people who had seen the films or in the hope that as a result of reading the book, they would see the films, you know, because or seek them out? Because it was hard, as James, exactly as you remember, I remember exactly the same thing. I remember reading the book and thinking, but I want to see. Mm. You seem to remember even A Canterbury Tale was relatively hard yeah, to yeah. get to yeah, see. Yeah. It's mu- yeah. it's much a more film which train. now we would think yeah, of as yeah. canonical it was so hard to... Find it wasn't like a matter of life and death or the red shoes. It wasn't, you know, just on the telly on the in the afternoon. There was some TV. I mean, there, there was the arena thing that he did while he was still alive, and then there was a South Bank show, which you can find. The South Bank show, yeah. he did, yeah, yeah. Just be, a couple of years before he died. There's also a great thing on uh, the Late Show from '92. You've got this slightly dotty old man talking about about films. Yeah, for, for those in the know. These were the only ways of finding out, and and of course his book. It's not so much that you liked them; it's that you liked them, but you couldn't find out much about yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And there was a scarcity of, of information. So any sort of, uh, but you know, in a life in movies, when you're plunged into these stories, everything you always wanted to know about the the making and the casting of the red shoes, you know, it's just it's just glorious. And, and he's so engaging too. I bet that little clip from the Southbank show we heard. He, I mean, he, he was obviously quite old. But one of the extraordinary things, I don't know if anybody's seen Return to the Edge of the World, where he goes back with oh. his wife, Frankie. And he, you see what he's got on when he arrives? He's literally got a full deer stalker and a cape. Yes. I mean, and then a few a few <laughs> scenes later, he's got the most incredible Farrell sweater I've ever seen. I mean, and, and in the Southbank show as well, amazing waistcoats and crazy combinations of tie. I mean, he's kind, he was real dandy, even, even, even in his 80s. Yeah, Michael Powell never phoned it in. I think no. we can. Uh, <laughs> I think we can be sure of that. So I'm just going to read a bit from the book now, which um, will dovetail with the film I'm going to talk about very briefly. This is uh, Powell's description of his first meeting with his collaborator and friend Emmerich Pressburger. And what I would like um, to point out in within this is, first of all, how much like a Powell and Pressburger film it is, and second of all, the technique that Powell uses when he describes uh, Emmerich in the second section. So the first the first t- time is this. They're, they're having a meeting with Alex Corder, the producer, uh, about a script which isn't working called The Spy in Black. We four gathered on Thursday in the anteroom outside Alex Corder's office. It was usually crowded, but today there was only a small man making notes on a piece of paper. Irving arrived, accompanied by the author of the screenplay. We nodded to each other. The author was bristling. He had obviously heard something to his disadvantage. Irving was ready to fight for the script too, but looked a bit uncertain, like a champion who doesn't know from which direction the attack is coming. Alex had this effect on people. 
Irving said to me, have you ever heard of Emmerich Pressburger? I said that I hadn't. As a matter of fact, I had seen the name on a screen treatment of Tolstoy's Kreutzer Sonata. I'd been asked to read it and had reported favourably and had remembered the name. He's one of Alex's contract writers, Irving went on. Of course, in a large organisation like London Films, with many hundreds of people working there, it was perfectly possible for two people under contract not to know each other. At this point, the character in the corner, who had continued making notes unnoticed by any of us, stood up and introduced himself. Excuse me, I am Pressburger. He made a little bow. We shook hands all round. With perfect timing, the door opened. Alex, we'll see you now, gentlemen. We trooped in. And there follows an account of a meeting in which Pressburger monologues for 20 minutes about the faults with the screenplay with the writer in the room, (laughs) making it clear that he knows how to fix it. He knows how to create a vehicle that will work for their contract star, Conrad Voigt, in The Spy in Black. And their other contract star, Valerie Hobson. He's turned the idea inside out. This is the thing Mickey Powell says about Pressburger over and over again. How does he approach an idea? He turns it inside out. And it's the beginning, as they say, of a beautiful friendship. So after the meeting, they go into the uh, restaurant to find Conrad Veit together. This is what happens. Conrad Veit was seated alone at a table by the window, drinking coffee, when Emmerich and I arrived at the studio restaurant. Emmerich and I exchanged a glance. This magnificent animal was reserved for us. Then we looked at each other. I saw a short, compact man with beautiful and observant eyes and a broad, intellectual forehead, formally and neatly dressed. He was a Hungarian Jew which meant that he was witty, ingenious, creative, and sports-loving. I learned later that he had been a runner himself over a distance of 440 metres. He had also been a professional violinist and had played in theatre orchestras. Although small in stature, he looked well-made and strong both in person and in his convictions, and he obviously feared nobody, not even Alex Corder. Emmerich saw a young, lean Englishman, for the Burmese trip had brought me down to about 148 pounds and the sun had burnt me black, with a toothbrush moustache and piercing blue eyes. At the moment, they had a look of veneration in them. They had seen a marvel, a screenwriter who could really write. I was not going to let him get away in a hurry. I had always dreamt of this phenomenon, a screenwriter with the heart and mind of a novelist who would be interested in the medium of film and who would have wonderful ideas which I would turn into even more wonderful images and who only use dialogue to make a joke or to clarify the plot. I congratulated him on the conjuring trick he had pulled with poor Stora Clouston's plot. Let's talk to Connie Veit before Irving gets at him, I said. I was learning rapidly from the Hungarians. I mean, yes. Mel, what I love about that is you're, you're, you've got a filmic sense of Powell's shot. He's got a shot on Pressburger, which he describes. Mm. And then he has another shot in which he describes Pressburger looking at him. He doesn't just describe how he looked. He has what is Emmerich seeing? 
And seeing is one of the recurring motifs in Powell and Pressburger films. I mean, that, you know, that, that moment is like a sort of, it's halfway between a sort of rom-com meet cute, these people who are destined <laughs> for each other, kind of coming face to face. But it's also a bit like the sort of Terminator sort of scanning and like working out who somebody is, you know, this, yes. this idea of like, okay, I've sussed out exactly what kind of person you are and that that process is reciprocal and then... This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, to quote a different film. Does it, James, does it matter uh, if Powell and Pressburger were or weren't friends? Um, I think it, it, it really does. It really matters for um, their partnership. Um, one thing that, that Powell insists on is that they get 50-50 billing. Um, and he he says that his agent was appalled. He said, what are you doing? You know, he's just the writer. The writers yeah. didn't have, you know, much much cachet. But he said, no, you've got to understand what we're trying to do here. Uh, and, you know, um, to get a Beatles reference in, it was a, a sort of Lennon and McCartney um, partnership. And they were friends. He yeah. speaks very um, tenderly yeah. about, about Emmerich. Um, yeah. they, I don't think they had many disagreements. If they if they did, that he, he doesn't really go into them. You know, um, and they did have this thing. I mean, um, it's interesting you, you were saying about, um, you know, the the the, uh, the sensibility of a novelist, and they did. They, you know, Powell did um, sort of help, or they they they, they went sort of Lennon McCartney's sort of style with 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 the dialogue. So that famous line from um, A Matter of Life and Death: "One is starved of Technicolor up there." Yeah. In Pressburger's script, it was one is starved of colour up there. And and yeah. um, Powell said, well, look, let's put in Technicolour, and there, there you go. You've got this the, the joke that, that let everybody I was going to say, everybody film. laughs. Yeah. Right, a little bit of tw- the, the twinkle, right? The twinkle, right? The, in the, 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 it's, it's of a piece with, um, you know, the film I'm, I'm advocating for is The Spy in Black, which is the first Powell and Pressburger collaboration. Now, listen, that's not a masterpiece, but just because something isn't a masterpiece doesn't mean it isn't full of lovely little details or themes or performances that will come to be the things by which we define the Archer's films. And one of the things I didn't know until, or had forgotten until I reread this book, is that the script for The Spy in Black was worked up not just between Powell and Pressburger, but in fact between Powell, Pressburger, Conrad Veidt and Valerie Hobson. The reason why it leaps off the screen now is because they collaborated with, it's a collaboration between filmmakers, writers and actors. In other words, Powell's Catholic approach to the sources that he would draw on for his work is right there in the method. How do you make this bad script that they were handed come alive? You workshop it with the people you're going to be collaborating with. Um, And then you fuse it with Powell's visual sense. It's such a fun film. I I think it's it's really underrated, The Spy in Black. I I know it's minor, but hey, you know... That's okay. <laughs> That's fine. Don't, don't you think there's a connection with Hitchcock's? He was a huge admirer of Hitchcock's 39 Steps, pal. Mm. And I just feel there's a sort of 
you know, he because the, the use of landscape, which obviously um, is, is this made, this was made after uh, Edge of the World as well, wasn't it? He he'd done Edge. Yes, of the it World. was. It's so, thirty nine. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. So there's there's that sensibility that he brings to it, which I think kind of also obviously resurfaces in a major way a few years later in um, in uh, I know where I'm going. It does remind me, Spy and Black, Mel, does remind me, as John said, it does remind me of the 39 Steps. It has that kind of, um, I hate the word quirky, but you know what I mean. It's <laughs> yeah. taking a thriller. It's taking a thriller and finding ways to Hitch- give it character. Exactly. Hitchcock mm. invents a girl that isn't in the John Buchan novel, which is, yeah. of course, yeah. the great, the, it's the great Madeleine Carroll being, them being handcuffed. It's, it's what makes the movie, right? That and Mr. Memory is what makes every that's what everybody remembers about the 39 steps and um you know in a life in movies there's a wonderful kind of a portrait of of hitchcock as well at that point yeah. where pal's mm. working um has managed to kind of inveigle himself into british international pictures as <laughs> a sort of a stills photographer and um he describes hitchcock's kind of this kind of buddha type figure and you know who's completely in control and doesn't miss a trick and is quite inscrutable but um but is already a kind of supreme director and there's you know there's a nice kind of saluting there I think of a kind of fellow filmmaker I would like to just finish this this little discussion of the spy in black and uh, of Powell and Pressburger um, when uh, uh, Million Dollar Movie, the second volume of Powell's memoir was published, it was reviewed uh, by various people, including the film, the great British filmmaker Lindsay Anderson. And this is what Lindsay Anderson wrote about the difference between the two of them. He, he said, Pressburger was very much a European intellectual. He subscribed to Time magazine and he worried for hours when he missed the six o'clock news. <laughs> whereas Powell read the TLS and couldn't have cared less what had happened so long as they didn't tell me about it. He cared about art, even if his taste was erratic. He scorned Davis and his rank films non-entities. Quote, as for tact, a bull in a pasture has more tact, but I have learned to hold my tongue. It took a long time, though. And over the years, Powell's caustic expression of convictions cost him dear. I mean, that, that Lindsay Anderson knows of what he speaks, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that seems projection in the filmic sense and otherwise of a character trait, at least. Mm. Listen, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment with not merely matters of life and death, but a matter of life and death. So uh, see you after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. We're talking about Michael Powell's life in movies. And I'm turning now to, I'm slight, doing this slightly out of chronological order, but I, I feel I, we, we should move to a film, which is one of the jewels of British cinema, A Matter of Life and Death. James, you've already told us you saw it when you were young. Um, you were going to tell us a bit about it now as well in relation to A Life in Movies. Yeah, so it's, uh, it was Michael Powell's favourite um, film. Of, of of the ones that they did, um, I, I believe Emmerich Pressburgers was was Blimp, um, and it's also my favourite uh, film of all time. I'd probably say um, I must have seen it, like you, Andy. I tried to work out how many times I'd, I'd seen it. So I think if I if I watched it twice a year for the last <laughs> thirty years, that's sixty times. Okay, wow, it's just a perfect film. Perfect in the sense of those films that are, they're complete sort of um, accidents, really, that everything is perfect. The music, the casting, Powell says something like, there's no such thing as a big or a small part. There are only shorter or longer ones. <laughs> and so every face, every last character in, in A Matter of Life and Death is, is, is perfect. Um, you've also got the fact that that what most people know that it's visually outrageous, it's playful. The whole film is, is from the just, first line, got, yeah, yeah. From the it's just I mean it's packed with great one-liners, but you've got this sense of you've got these two master craftsmen at the very top of their game. You know, like the Beatles. This would be my last Beatles reference, I promise. Um, in an imperial phase, <laughs> you're, you're among friends here. You're safe. Here. <laughs> okay, all right. 66, 66 to seventy, whatever it was. You know, they've learned the craft. They've mastered rock and roll. They've mastered the ballad form. They're going to have some fun, and this is exactly what Powell and Pressburg are too. They're going to have some fun with the form. So these in jokes, uh, one start of Technicolor up there. You know, these meta jokes start to creep in, and it's just playful. It's just it's all the humour. And fun of American films, but with this English sensibility. The line near the start of the film, this is the universe big, isn't it? That's Douglas Adams' avant la lettre. It is. <laughs> isn't it? It sounds like a modern dialogue. You know, it's, it sounds like, the, yeah. again, it's all the sensibilities of a modern film right from the start. You've got this, yes, yeah, like the tone is very, um, it's playful, you know, and that's, that's one of the reasons I think it's survived despite all its other uh, uh, qualities. James, do you have anything? I know you've got a, a, an essay you want to talk about in re, in relation to a matter of life and death. This is from the middle nineties, and it's from a an essay, a lovely personal essay by the late great uh, writer David Kavanagh, who was mainly a music writer, but he wrote this for Empire Magazine. It was, it was free with Empire Magazine in nineteen ninety five, and it just it just gives a sense of uh, how obsessive and um, protective. Powell and Pressburger fans were at that point where you couldn't really access their, their, um, their films that easily. When I hear Michael Powell's name, and to be frank, it's usually me he's mentioning it, I get a series of rapid images and words. 
I visualise the word Kent, his birthplace. I see the date, 1905, his year of birth. I see lustrous reds, deep greens and creamy whites. It goes quickly now. Technicolour, fantasy, airmen, nuns. Technicolour, fantasy, airmen, nuns. I'm really not interested Mm -hmm. if some people think the Archers made fanciful films about stiff upper lip characters or celebrated a back-to-basics England or ignored four-fifths of human society in their plots or had a pretty creaky sense of humour. I care about the fact that I haven't yet seen their 1949 film The Small Back Room. I care that you don't get Technicolor in real life. I'm bluffing monstrously here, but Technicolor is more than a process of primary colours and half-tones. It's a kaleidoscope, and one that a planet as prosaic as Earth doesn't altogether deserve. Powell's autobiographies talk about the facts. The Technicolor magician Dr. Herbert Kalmus, his wife Natalie, and the invention they sweetly called natural colour. But Michael Powell's use of Technicolor is unique and perfect. You can see the difference in Powell colour with, well, pick any other Technicolor movie. Rope by Alfred Hitchcock will do. It's exactly the same invention. In fact, in the opening credits of Rope, Natalie Kalmus is listed as Technicolor colour director. But Rope doesn't talk or dress like an Archer's film. It's probably the best film about a dead guy in a box has ever been. But it isn't Kent, it isn't 1905, and it isn't mm. Technicolor fantasy airmen nuns. Gosh, that's good, oh. isn't it? Oh, Superb. Dave. Superb. David Superb. Superb. Well, picking up on the Technicolor thing, okay, in the war there was no Technicolor, and they had to make some movies which weren't able to use Technicolor. Blimp was Technicolor. I know where I'm going. It was written very quickly. Pressburger had had an idea about, he said he always wanted to make a film about a girl who wants to go to an island but can't get there. And by the time she can get there, her life has changed in some mysterious way. He said, in the way a young girl's life sometimes do. And that was that's how it started. Frankie, Michael Powell's wife, suggested the, uh, the, the, the title On the Bus between, I think, Hyde Park Corner and, and Green Park, saying, well, you should call it I Know Where I'm Going. And he yeah. said, why? He said, because it's a great song. This know, I Know song, Where I'm yeah. Going. I Know Who'll Go With yeah, Me. Yeah. I Know yeah, Who yeah, I Love, yeah. but I dear knows who I'll marry, which is the song. He, she, she's so middle-class girl in the war from Manchester. Her dad's a bank manager, has become uh, uh, engaged to a very rich man who owns a, who is renting a Scottish island. She goes up there to get married. She gets to the to to almost to the island and then can't because there's a storm, and she spends three days trying to get to the island, and in the course of that she falls in love with the true uh, owner of the island, the Laird of Caloran. Um, why do I love this film? Because two reasons. One is it's just it's beautifully made and complex, and it has amazing Scottish scenery. He said, given this scenario, he says. Listen, this is the way that Powell and Pressburger work brilliantly together. He said, Once Emmerich had manoeuvred his people into a situation where they committed to try to reach the island, it was up to me to create about 25 minutes of spectacular action to prevent them from doing so, which he does brilliantly hmm. by bringing in the real whirlpool, Corivrecken, which he uh, had scoped when he went up to Jura, uh, very nearly meets Eric Blair, who is writing 1984 as this film is being made. (laughs) In my heart, this film, because it's also a film, I think, that comes out of the energy of the 1945 election, it's about we need more than materialism, love matters more than than money and capitalism. But also there is a deep 
deep love and respect for tradition. The Cayley sequence in this film is one of the great bits of, of traditional folk on in, in a British film ever. I love this film so much that I've been to Killoran. I mean, I, mean yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, no. I sit, honestly, I have to say, I sat last night with Rachel. We both sat, literally cried all the way through it. We, yeah. we got a wolfhound yeah. because of Pamela Brown's wolfhounds in this film. Yeah. You know, that, that, yeah. This, this is how it's mad my, my, my love for this. And the, the, beautiful film. So let me just tell you the final thing and then I'll, I'll shut up about that because everybody ought to go and watch it. I <laughs> went to see it at the ICA in 1986-87. Michael Powell was there. Okay. He, at the end of the film, the lights go up and Michael Powell is sitting with tears streaming down his face. And he just says, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that film since we made it. Wow. I'd forgotten how beautiful it is. And I mean, everybody, I'm choking <laughs> up here, everybody in the audience is of just uh, to be there to see this of man course. who's been through, had been through so much. And to, you know, to be suddenly in front of an audience with everybody. I mean, you got a standing ovation, obviously. A couple of little amazing facts about the film. Andy, you must know there's a there's a small cameo in this film that you should know about. The young girl, the Robinson, the the bridge-playing swatty kid. Do you know who that's played by? Is it Paul McCartney? No, it's a girl. It's a woman. It's Petula Clark. It's Petula Clark. <laughs> oh, wow. It's Petula Clark. Oh, of course it's Petula Clark. <laughs> One other thing. Oh. He wanted to cast James Mason as the lead of Caloran. And James Mason basically said, I know about you, pal. You, this is this involves a whirlpool and you and, and boats and he said no I'm not doing it so uh, Roger Livesey desperate to play it he says he's too old and also you're in a stage you're in a stage play you're not going to be able to he, Roger Livesey can't get out of the stage play the whole of that film is made without Roger Livesey well you know this yeah. you've read the book but Roger Livesey doesn't go to Scotland doesn't go it's near, just incredible near it's it. incredible it's mind blowing right Spy in Black is made according to Powell in this book in five weeks and merely saying it's made in five weeks to put it in real time that <laughs> the, 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 all these incredible shots and these these performances and things are just kind of done on the hoof quickly fast mm. that's the nature of yeah, film yeah. and then it's captured forever and caught forever Melanie that would be a lovely point to leave off with that triumphant moving <laughs> um, power receiving the acclaim for which he's due tell us about Gone to Earth though <laughs> well I mean Gone to Earth is so slightly beyond the, the scope of what uh, what Pal's talking about in the life in movies, so it comes beyond that that moment of international triumph and acclaim with um, the red shoes, and obviously that's really kind of brought a lot of attention to Powell and Pressburger. Um, but it's also the kind of end of that very particular moment, special moment that they had of artistic freedom. Um, kind of made possible by by the rank organisation at that time. And like all great things, it seems it has to come to an end. Um, so it's what they do beyond that point. And um, Hollywood is interested. Um, and specifically uh, Selznick, David O. Selznick, yeah. uh, famous producer of Gone with the Wind. At this point, he's uh, kind of very much about creating star vehicles for his new partner, Jennifer Jones. And famously, this is where Jewel in the Sun, the, the kind of mega Technicolor Western emerges from, 
or lost in the dust, as it was uh, described. So this is uh, kind of Selznick and Jennifer Jones and the kind of Hollywood mega budget kind of way of doing things, meeting Powell and Pressburger, who were coming from a very different sensibility, a very different Mm. production context. And it's fair to say that it doesn't uh, kind of work out brilliantly. Um, Although there's lots of things in the film that are kind of magical and wonderful. And Jennifer Jones, even if her accent might be a bit wonky, does a wonderful job of playing uh, Hazel Woodus, who's this kind of fey wild child in the (laughs) Shropshire uh, countryside. And, and, you know, it's drawn from Mary Webb's novel. And it's all the kind of rural stuff that Cold Comfort Farm is kind of ripping it out of. Um, But done with absolute uh, sincerity and commitment. So Hazel um, has this pet fox, Foxy, and she kind of talks affectionately to it. And, in a, in a kind of sub-Thomas Hardy way, there's a, a kind of tussle over her affections that's also to do with her sexual probity. You know, will she go with the good guy will, or will she succumb to the wicked squire? So we're kind of in this like rural Victorian melodrama universe. There are many beautiful shots on location in Shropshire, I mean, it's just got some stunning images, but mm. it's also a film that was subject to kind of legal action. Selznick took and re-edited the film and put it out as the, the wild heart. Yes, it comes out in the States, doesn't it, as yeah. a completely different title and, film. And films some fresh scenes and cuts others, yeah. so it, it ends up... With M- Ram- Rama Mamoulian. Yes, yeah. yeah. Steps up, doesn't he? He's, to, he's um, a fine and, and wonderful filmmaker yeah. in his own right, but it, it really then um, kind of reorientates the film in a different way. And for a long time, that was the version of the film that yeah. was in circulation. Yeah. So it's also the one that... Um, Raymond Durniat, the film critic, sees on BBC television. And he, although he's a big advocate and fan of Powell and Pressburger, he sort of says, oh, this film's a bit rubbish. They kind of, you know, whenever there's anything a bit sexy happening, they cut away to a harpist or, uh, you know, a, a tree or something. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's full of cliches. And and it, it's a shame. It would be interesting to know what Durniat would have thought had he seen the kind of yeah. not butchered, boulderized version that that had emerged from Selznick's kind of fan edit, um, which took the film in a completely different direction. I, I mean, for me, Gone to Earth, I, I find Gone to Earth fascinating, more fascinating than good, <laughs> um, as, as you suggest. Mm. One of the things I felt um, revisiting the material for this show is I hadn't really appreciated how much the Second World War provides Powell and Pressburger with a focus and a financial possibility to get these films made. And that when the Second World War ends, they are in trouble because there aren't patrons willing to 
fund their ambiguous, is it propaganda or isn't it, series of exercises with films that engage with issues raised by the war, such as, you know, fate and what we think of as good and evil. And suddenly they're out in the cold. They're in the world of Selznick and box office. And, you know, I'd never really appreciated how much they needed the Second World War and the Second World War needed them, as we suggested earlier, that the 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 films are not coincidentally the product of the war. They are directly the product of the war. There's definitely so many of them. There's definitely a moment after the war, and I think I think Powell talks about it where they're like, "Okay, well, what what do we do now?" And yeah. you know, one answer to that is crazy nuns, and another answer to it <laughs> is ballet. Um, but I suppose the overarching thing that they they really begin to lean into is this idea of the composed it's film, true. where yeah. it's all kind of you know, meticulously put together and and very much a kind of expression of that belief that all, all arts are one. And, and Powell kind of repeats this yeah. across the book and across yeah. interviews yeah. that, you yeah. know, all art forms converge and can be kind of understood as tributaries of the same thing. And pushes it and pushes it as far as he can go with Pe- Peeping Tom, which is a, kind, is a kind of a composed film. It's a, a remarkable um, bit of work, but that costs him his career. Yeah, so like Peeping Tom, as we know, ruins Powell's reputation and career for a while, though it subsequently comes back to enhance it. Um, that film appears in 1960. I promised you, listeners, earlier that I had something to share with you um, that uh, had not been circulated since 1959. Okay, so here we go. This is, while Michael Powell was making Peeping Tom, he spotted a newspaper story um, which said that officials of the Rabbit Clearance Advisory Council are reported to have complained that Beatrix Potter's books encourage children to think of rabbits as little darlings and that no attempt is being made to present the rabbit as a fictional criminal. Right. And so Michael Powell responded to this in verse in the July 1959 issue of Country Life magazine. This has not been published since then. It's a poem Michael Powell wrote called Fierce Bad Rabbit. Fierce Bad Rabbit being the original title of Peter Rabbit, the tale of the Fierce Bad Rabbit. And Powell, in his quixotic, quirky way, decides to respond to the uh, movement of the Rabbit Clearance Advisory Council in the following manner. And I'm going to read you this poem. As I say, this is an extremely rare piece of Powell's work, which has not circulated for 65 years. It's a poem called Fierce Bad Rabbit. Child, take a pull. Adjust your toys from teddy bears to teddy boys. Drop warm and cuddly flopsy bunnies for rape and striptease in the funnies. An atom babe needs something hotter than fluffy tales by Beatrix Potter. Fixations on a fierce bad rabbit in later life become a habit. Kids that are happy cuddling pets can only be described as wets. 
you need to cure this deep neurosis by literary mixmatosis. <laughs> Flopsy, Mopsy and Cottontail are characters beyond the pale. Benjamin Bunny, Peter Rabbit, as childhood images have had it. A complex sown by Pigling Bland is something that we understand. We know too well the Freudian laws of Tiggy Winkle's pinafores. We trace the conflicts in your house to tattle of Mrs. Tittlemouse. We spot unconscious ideations in Squirrel Nutkin's imitations and find fulfilment for the wish a uh, reading inspires of Jeremy Fisher. <laughs> Be warned, in time, don't trust your luck to dread Jemima Puddle Duck. Relax, don't think, we'll save you yet from sublimation with your pet. Pet? No, your pest, our members cry. You know how rabbits multiply. So when we've emptied hill and dale of flopsy, mopsy, cottontail and every nursery tale is told and every rabbit hutch is cold then we will wander hand in hand through england's green and pleasant land so green and pleasant when it's planned michael powell <laughs> fabulous <laughs> brilliant don't you think that's astounding yeah yeah It'll make I a do. great great band name as well, Fierce Bad Rabbit. Fierce Bad Rabbit is good. That's, that's my new favourite band name. Also, the, do you know why I know that's Michael Powell? Because apart from the mischievous and splenetic tone, it's a Freudian reading of Peter yeah, Rabbit, yeah, yeah, yeah. which indeed we will come to see in Peeping Tom, which he's making at that time. What an incredible find. Anyway, we will put that poem, unless the estate stops us doing so, we will put the poem on the website we so you can see it. Um, John, I think we have to wrap oh, up now. It's time, time to bring up the house lights and to repair to the bar. So, yeah, huge thank you to James and to Mel for help really enabling us to spend an hour and a bit talking about one of our favourite modern artists and also to Nikki for being an audio version of Thelma Shoemaker. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Nikki. If you want Thank show you. notes with clips, links and suggestions for further reading for this show and the 205 <laughs> we've already recorded, please visit our website at batlisted.fm. If you want to buy the books discussed in this or any of our other shows, visit our shop at bookshop.org and choose Batlisted as your bookshop. And we're still keen to hear from you on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky and wherever else you feel compelled to write from. If you want to hear Backlisted early and ad-free, subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. Your subscription brings other benefits if you subscribe at the lot listener level. For a monthly fee that's half the cost of getting married in the Hebrides in 1948, you'll get not one but two <laughs> extra exclusive podcasts every month. It features the three of us talking and recommending the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. For those of you who enjoyed our What Have You Been Reading slot, that's where you'll now find it. It's an hour of tunes, musings, and superior book chat. Plus, lot listeners get their names read out, accompanied by lashings of praise like this. Caroline, thank you. Andrew Lear, thank you. Michael Fountain, thank you. Margaret Einerson, thank you. Bob Bradshaw, thank you. Tim Arding, thank you. Steve Carnaby, what an excellent yeah. surname, Steve. Uh, thank you. Tanya Spooner, thank you. Martin Arbor, thank you. Anne Corden, thank you. Briefly, James, is there anything you would like to add on the subject of Michael Powell's A Life in Movies that we have not had time to cover? Um, 
I'd just like to say that the um, th- there's a line in A Matter of Life and Death, which is probably the most backlisted line in all of film. Uh, <laughs> so when Roger Livesey says to David Niven, he invites him to stay at his house. They're in the library and, and Niven says, um, can I stay in here, Doc? I just want to be near all these books. And that's that's my that's my favourite line from the film. Andy Marvel, what a yep. marvel! That's the, I I can't hear the name Andrew Marvel since 1985 yeah. without thinking of that line. Andy Marvel, what a marvel! Well, that's not how you spell um, Shakespeare. Who are you? His agent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I watched it last night, so I've got all the lines. <laughs> wonderful, it's wonderful. Melanie, is there anything you would like to add on the subject of these wonderful? I can't think of anything. Uh, I know where I'm going, though. I, on Saturday, I'm going to watch I Know Where I'm Going. <laughs> wow. Yes. Recursive loop. Yes. Good. Fantastic. There's a great story that he tells at the end of I Know Where I'm Going, uh, where they're throwing water into Wendy Hiller's face, pretending she's on a boat. Uh, David Niven is standing <laughs> just off. And it's, this is great. He just turns in and says, is this a private fight or can anyone get in on it? Yeah. <laughs> it was at that very instant I cast him for Peter, the hero of a matter yeah. of life and death and the rest. Ah, and it's part two. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, listen, everybody, thanks so much. Uh, thank you, Melanie. Thank you, James. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, what, thank you. A, what a pleasure. Joy. What a marvel to have you join us. If you haven't seen at least 20 of these films, get on it, do it now, make it make it happen. And we'll see you uh, in a couple of weeks' time, won't we, Johnny? We will. All right, thanks, guys. That was brilliant. See you soon. Bye. Bye.